Welcome back to the One God Report podcast. Bill Schlegel here. In this episode, we continue our discussion with Dr. Andrew Perry on the prologue of the Gospel of John. If you didn't hear the previous episode, I think you'll want to hear that episode. Dr. Perry holds a PhD in New Testament from the University of Durham. Check out his articles and books on his academia.edu page or the hardcover books on Lulu. Links are in the show notes. For instance, he's written commentaries on the book of Joel and Job and Isaiah and a number of other biblical topics. In this episode, Dr. Perry will answer the question why the man Jesus is called the Word in John 1.1. And how can we know that the man, the human Christ Jesus, is being referred to in John 1.1 when the text says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That the Word here is the human Christ Jesus, and not a pre-existent divine being, or an abstract personification like wisdom. How can we know that the man Christ Jesus is being referred to in John chapter 1, verse 1? So, back to the interview with Dr. Andrew Perry. Okay, Andrew, should we... Go on to talk about why Jesus is called the Word here in John 1 1 and again in John 1 14. Yep, we can go on. Okay. So, Andrew, let me ask you then what or who is the Word in verse 1? And if this specifically is the man Jesus Christ, why would he be called the Word? Okay, well, I do think that it is the man, Jesus Christ, that is referred to as the Word in John 1, verse 1. And the reason John uses this title is he signals to us that he's using this title based on Genesis 1, and the and God said utterances. And so he sees in Jesus the power that God displays in John 1 verse 1 through his voice in his being able to speak and for something to happen. Mm. So for example, if we compare all of the miracles in the Old Testament done by the prophets with the miracles that Jesus did, we can see there's a contrast between them as a whole, which is that Jesus was able to speak for something to happen. Whereas the miracles that the Old Testament prophets, except for one example, or one exception, the miracles they perform are all in the name of the Lord or invoking God. Whereas Jesus' miracles all come with, not all, but uh, many come with just the power of his voice. So he might say to the storm, be still, and the storm is, is stilled. Or he might say at the cave where Lazarus was buried, come forth. And Lazarus walks forth, or he might say to the man, rise up and walk, and he rises up and walks. Or he might say, some distance away, your daughter is healed, and she is healed. So there's a power in Jesus' voice, which uh, John has seen, I think, and this is his uh, 
way of telling us what that power is. It is for Jesus to be the Word of God. That would be my first point. My second point would be that when it says that the Word was with God and was God, then these two predicates, with God and was God, are indicative of a person and not a heavenly being, a heavenly hypostasis, or a literary personification. So I think the two predicates are uh, best explained in relation to the man Jesus, with God and was God. And the third point I would make is that the repetition in verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God, is in a relationship with verse 7, which says of John the Baptist, the same came for a witness. Commentators have trouble explaining verse 2 and the repetition of verse 2, and that's because they haven't seen that it's uh, in this relationship with verse 7, which is a relationship of contrast. This one was in the beginning with God, whereas John the Baptist, this one came for a witness. It's establishing the relative relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. And many commentators have seen in John's Gospel, including the prologue, a contrast between Jesus and John the Baptist and a, an addressing of a problem that they think lies in the background, which is that of those who, whose loyalty was towards John the Baptist and who confused the relative identity of John the Baptist with regard to Jesus and the Messiah. So that would be my third point as to why it is the man Jesus in verse 1, which means, of course, when we discuss verse 14, I have to say something different with regard to verse 14. Those are the three reasons. I haven't really seen any um, counter-arguments to those three arguments that I present for it being the man Jesus. Those are excellent points, Andrew. And I think the contrast with John the Baptist, we haven't talked about the, the three paragraph breakdown of the prologue, the first 18 verses, but in each of these three paragraphs, one through five, six through 13, 14 to 18, hmm. I think as you've explained, we can see the intentional effort to contrast Jesus with John the Baptist. And yeah. for, for any interpretation that takes this as a commentary on Genesis, be it the traditional Christian interpretation of a second divine being here involved in the creation of the universe, or another biblical Unitarian interpretation of a, a personified uh, abstract logos that's involved in the beginning that eventually is embodied in Jesus, both these interpretations fail to take into account the contrast in the prologue and early in this gospel between Jesus the man, the man Jesus, and yeah. John the Baptist. John the Baptist is here already, I think, as you've explained, there's comparison between John and Jesus, perhaps even already in verse 1. And we can get to that when he says he was with God, and then it's repeated, this one was with God. And yeah. then and John 
clearly the contrast between John in verses 6 to 8. And John appears again in verse 15 in the prologue and in comparison with Jesus. And then in the rest of the chapter, yeah. there's John the That's Baptist. Correct. Yeah. That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the contrast with John the Baptist and Jesus is not is not controversial. It's just a question of where you see it. And seeing it between verse 2 and verse 7 is innovative for this reading, whereas commentators see it, yes, with verse 15 in the early chapters of the gospel and in verses 6 through 8. So we have to account for that. And you've got the emphasis right. This one was in the beginning. This one came from witness. Mm. To a certain extent, this contrast with John the Baptist, um, although the language in the prologue can appear to be abstract and, and somewhat terse, um, is really down-to-earth and historical because of this contrast with John the Baptist. In a, in a way, you could almost read it not as a prologue, but as just the opening of the gospel made in this distinctive way to contrast John the Baptist's ministry and his significance with the significance of Jesus and his ministry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is interesting to see the Orthodox Trinitarian commentators and our Biblical Unitarian friends try to deal with John the Baptist in verse, clearly, in verse uh, 6 and following. They're just He's out of place with interpreting the beginning here as the Genesis creation. Many commentators, of course, regard verse 6 through 8 as an interpolation, a later addition to an earlier him that the prologue really is and they also regard verse 15 as a later edition and therefore not part of the prologue so you'll find commentators giving an exegesis of the prologue or the original prologue that they see uh, which uh, excludes verses 6 through 8 and verse 15 and i guess that's partly because they don't see verse 6 through 8 and verse 15 as fitting their conception, which is a more abstract Genesis-based reading of the prologue. Exactly. So just get rid of the verses that don't fit the theory. Andrew, let me have you comment a little bit more on your second point. The phrase is, the word was with God, and the word was God. And you commented how you can see that this is a person, and we understand it to be the man, Jesus Christ. Could you expand a little bit more on that idea yeah the um i'll go i'll take them in reverse and start with was god um if we go into second temple writings or into the old testament and look for um, a precedent for a was god predicate and being made of an abstract entity such as a hypostasis like the word the logos or like wisdom then you're not going to find one and so it's exceptional if you try to locate the prologue and its idea of the word in that sort of context a wisdom context or a second temple logos context it's much easier to see uh, precedence in terms of men or a particular man which we'll talk about which is Moses because Moses is presented as God to Aaron and as someone who was both with God 
on Mount Sinai, whereas the people were not with God on Mount Sinai. And also as someone who ministered the things that were towards God in relation to Aaron and in relation also to the people. And so when it comes to the second predicate with God, I think that John's distinctive Greek here for with God, which is proston theon, is picking up this language that's used of Moses. And it's placing Jesus, the man, or it's talking about a mediatorial role uh, of someone who is towards God, as Moses was a minister of the things towards God in relation to Aaron. Um, so the two predicates just better fit and have Old Testament uh, precedence um, in the case of Moses. So what I think we've got here in John is a sort of Moses and Aaron typology where he sees Jesus as Moses, the one who was in the beginning towards God. And he sees John the Baptist as, a, as an Aaron, someone like Aaron, um, who was a spokesman. And so I think there's that sort of typology behind verse one. So what you see really what here in verse one is a sort of merging together or a melding of Genesis links, which we've mentioned, and also this Exodus background as well. Okay. Let me just clarify that a little bit further and maybe suggest something. I'd be interested to hear how you respond to my suggestion. The trickier one is John 1.1c, and the word was God. I think everybody yeah. can agree to that. Because even in the traditional Christian interpretation, they see a distinction between the word and God in the second phrase. And the word was with God or towards God. So there's a distinction, and the Trinitarian world has to assume that God in that second phrase, the word was with God, is the Father. I think it is. I think they're right about that, that God is, is the Father. But there, there's a distinction between the word and God in 1-1-B, the word was with God. But then the author goes immediately to say, and the word was God. Can I understand that phrase, the word was God, in a functional sense, in that the author is looking back on the life of Jesus and seeing that God was the one who was at work in this man, Jesus Christ. In a parallel way, maybe to the Old Testament where God's word came out and did things, among other things you said, create spoke and things came to be. God's word came through the prophets and things happened. Description in Isaiah 55 is that when God's word comes out, it's like the rain that drops down, it's going to have an effect. Things are going to happen. And in that way, we can understand that the word was God acting functionally in a sense. This was God at work. So in that way, I don't see the title God being specifically applied to the word here in, in a one-to-one -one correspondence. It's definitely not in a ontological, metaphysical way. 
as traditional Christianity has understood this to be. But it's in a it's in a way that we can see that in the man Jesus Christ, this was God. Not metaphysical, but God is at work in him. Is there a problem with me understanding this phrase that way? I don't apply the title then God directly to Jesus. Well, the prologue's not about titles. It's not about title calling or name calling, is it? Because we don't have that sort of framework. We just have the straightforward predicate, was God. Um, one of the problems with interpreting was God is that um, you can take some correct ideas about was God and uh, apply them, but you may not be getting the right, you may not be making the right choice. So, for example, you could say Jesus uh, uh, had the, the functions of God, so that's what John means. Well, Jesus did perform functions that God performed, or did perform, has performed. But is that the right idea to apply in John 1? We need a reason to make that application. Or we might say, well, look, Jesus, he showed the character of God. So in that sense, he was God. Well, we know Jesus did show the character of God. Um, he manifested God's character. And so we could say, well, that's what was God means in John 1 verse 1. But then again, we need a reason for choosing that. We've got now two choices there for understanding was God. Now, Trinitarians have the same question. They may go down an ontological route, uh, but they tend to do so without argument. Uh, but they need to be able to justify was God is actually an ontological statement. How do we get that from the text? So there's three possibilities that we know are out there in the field, and we need a basis that would, you know, for choosing one of one of them or maybe another one. And that's my first point that I would make. Mm -hmm. And I think as exegetes, we can often have a correct idea, and because it's correct in itself. We tend to, that tends to persuade us, oh, well, it must be the right idea here for this verse. And uh, my second point would be that to understand was God, I think we have to understand verse 14 and discuss what verse 14 is doing. Because at least verse 14 is there in John chapter 1 and definitely related to verse 1. And so we can't really consider was God and what it means without also considering the significance of verse 14. Okay. Maybe, Andrew, before we go to verse 14, can I just say this? That yeah. I think it would be fair to eliminate the ontological interpretation of John 1.1c. Yeah because of historical and literary context. This is the 44th book in the Christian canon. And in one sentence or two sentences, to think that a Jewish author of the first century is now going to say that indeed 
there is a second figure who is God in an ontological sense. It would be such a revolution because before this time, for hundreds of years, thousands of years, God has instilled in his people that he's one. So to interpret this in an ontological sense just goes against all former revelatory teaching. I think you and I can understand that it's a different cultural milieu that misinterpreted this phrase in an ontological sense. Yeah, it's a later sort of environment, a thinking environment in the second century that starts going down that path towards an ontological reading of that phrase. So yeah, the Jewish background makes it very difficult to read it ontologically. And indeed, that may not be right as a characterization of Trinitarian reading. It, it would only really be a oversimplified characterization because of course they want to talk in terms of hypostasis readings of John 1 and relate was God as a predicate to a hypostasis reading uh, rather than a straight ontological identity uh, with God. Please explain are, that a little bit more. Yeah, normal commentary exegesis that is sort of moving towards or trying to find a background or a foundation for Trinitarian thinking would treat uh, John 1 verse 1 uh, in terms of a hypostasis, that is the word, and they would then find it easier to just say, well, the hypostasis, that is the word, because of the role and function of the word of God, then it was just an innovation on the part of John to say that this hypostasis that is the word of God is in effect God. And that would be the easiest explanation that they would give of John 1, 1c. That would be different to the two other explanations that we have considered, which is Jesus performing functions that God in the Old Testament, or Jesus manifested the character of God. And, and so it was God in that sense. I see. And is it because otherwise the Trinitarians run into the problem of modalism? Because you cannot equate the God of 1-1-B directly to the God of 1-1-C. You would be saying that the Word is the Father. Is that, in a sense, their, their difficulty? They've got to separate the God of 1-1-C from the God of 1-1-B. Yeah, I think they just basically hold the two clauses in, in a sort of tension. And that uncomfortable tension that they see between the two clauses, they believe, reflects the uncomfortable tension in Trinitarian formulation of one and three, three and one. So I think they see a precedent here and live with that uncomfortable tension. So when if Unitarians bang away on this point, um, I don't think it sort of strikes home. That would be my guess. Okay. Even though in this case it wouldn't be one and three, it'd be one and two and two and one, since there's no third person here. Yeah, that's true. So 
then let's go down to 114, which isn't really fair because I think if a person just jumps from 11 to 114, you're going to draw incorrect conclusions. But uh, since the word is mentioned in these two verses, what does then John 114 mean? The word became flesh. Would you like to comment on that now? Yeah, we can comment on that now. Um, I have no problem jumping from verse 1 to verse 14 in Exodus through verses 2 through 13 in order to set the right context for verse 14. But obviously, to some extent, there is a direct link between verse 1 and verse 14 because of the common use of the word logos. And so I think that whereas the traditional reading of verse 1 and verse 14 is in a forward sequence, so the verse 1 is first and verse 14 is second. I think verse 14 is first and verse 1 is second. And that's because verse 14 tells us that the word became flesh. So what we think of the word here in verse 14 has to be different from the word in verse 1, if we consider verse 1 to be about Jesus, because... Um, the word becoming flesh, the flesh there is, of course, Jesus. And the word becomes flesh in the case of Jesus. So rather than it being a forward sequence, it, it, it is, in fact, uh, the reverse. And that's because verse 14 is explaining and summarizing what's gone on in the previous 13 verses. And the best way we can capture that in English is to translate the conjunction as and so the word became flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten bringing in the experience of the disciples uh, we beheld the glory that's, that's the first time we get the experience of the disciples which john is placing himself among and uh, we get this sort of summary and explanation of what John has previously introduced. And so the word became flesh. And therefore, we have to think of the word in verse 14 in terms of a hypostasis and the, the hypostasis that sometimes is presented in the Old Testament of the word of God. Some of the verses of which you have already noted, like Isaiah 55, Psalm 107, and psalm 33 but there aren't many of such verses and the same old ones few as they are get mentioned all the time and therefore i think that verse 14 is just using the word as a linguistic hypostatization of this power in god's word to say something and for that to come about and that became flesh in the person of jesus that's my first point then. Okay. I'm going to push back just a little bit because it's, as I listen to you, I think, oh, I agree so much with what you're saying. And then in my mind, I say, no, I don't, I don't think I see it quite that way. And here is my consideration. I agree that the three paragraphs in the prologue of John's gospel, as we mentioned before, most likely the breakdown is from verses 1 to 5, and then from 6 to 13, 
and then from 14 to 18, that there is a resumption here. There's a review and expansion. You get different perspectives, different angles, but there's a review. And I would agree with what you said about this, the word Kai here, this and, that a better way to understand it is with so. But my focus would be on the word became. It's the word geneto from genomai in the Greek. And we see there's a wide range of semantic meanings, possible translations for this word. Among them, simply the word was or came into existence or showed up on the scene. So my problem with the word became here is that it's suggesting in the English mind a transition, an ontological transition from one state to another. And I prefer to simply see this as the gospel writer again, starting in another paragraph where he's going to review some of the things he's already said. He's already introduced Jesus as the word, and he's telling us why. Because through him, as, as in the Genesis creation, through him, life comes to be, etc. And so he says, so the word was flesh and dwelt among us. He's saying, this man, Jesus Christ, he's flesh. He's a human being. The word in this case was a human being. Parallel to the way the writer of the book of Hebrews starts his book and says, in many and various ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. He spoke. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through a son. A human person is the way in which God has spoken to us. A human person was the word. And the author's looking back and recording history that's already happened. And he can say that God's word was the man Jesus Christ. So I don't have a problem in a sense with the word became if we understand it to be he shows up on the scene at this time. He wasn't before this, before he was born, before he ministered. He was not here, but now he's been here. So what's wrong with my understanding? Our understandings are very similar, right? We have in common ideas like the three-paragraph structure, the review, the expansion, the summary, the explanation, uh, all these words we have in common. It's just a question of whether we prefer became or was. And it's difficult to distinguish the two unless you want to use the was in terms of specification of nature was flesh as opposed to more spirit, say, or was flesh as opposed to the Antichrist doctrine that the Messiah did not come in the flesh. So if you set was flesh in that context, then that would enlarge what you meant by was flesh. But if you weren't going to set it in that context and say was flesh is not a specification of human nature, then it becomes very similar to became, whereas became, of course, not an event in history. I guess that would be the way to contrast. 
so that I'm thinking of became in terms of this is something that happened in history and it's not therefore a specification to do with human nature. So yeah, I, I, mm -hmm. I agree with you that this is something that happened in human history. That's exactly what I understand. And but although, be go ahead. Well, became is a very, obviously a natural word. Again, it's part of the Egenito pattern that we've got in John 1, which mm. picked up from Genesis 1. Mm -hmm. And what Genesis 1 is showing is God said, and something became. Mm -hmm. So I would be um, reluctant to go with was um, because of that pattern that we need to be thinking of what becomes or what became in this case. And it is the case, in my view, that the word became flesh. Um, I mean, the consequence of that, obviously, is that after the word has become flesh, then the word is flesh. And that is a simple verb to be. And I would more expect, if you wanted the was, that you would have had a verb to be here instead of a verb to become, or ginemai, you'd have Amy instead of ginemai. That's mm -hmm. what I would have expected. Well, we've had it before, though, in, for instance, in John 1, 6, right? There was a man sent from God. His name was John. Yeah, you can go back to 6, and you know, there is a was there. Or you could have there came a man whose name was John, because you can became, can became. Mm -hmm. you, know, you get translations of Ginemiah's came and come, as well as was, as well as become, and so on, as well as made. You know, it's one of these mm -hmm. ubiquitous verbs in Greek that has a lot of equivalence in English, depending on the context. So it's going to be down to context to determine what the nuance is of Ginemai here. Mm. So I guess I'm going to say that Genesis 1 is favoring became, and uh, you but, could go and say verse 6 is helping your case. Yeah, but isn't the word egenito in the Genesis creation account usually translated simply as was? Let there be light, and there was light. Yep, it is translated as was, but when we read Genesis 1, it's all about what's happening, that God speaks and something happens. And it's that aspect of something happening that I would want to see in John 1, verse 14, in the phrase, the word, again, at all, flesh. And the danger with just the simple was in verse 14, whereas this isn't a danger in Genesis 1, is that you start thinking in terms of human nature. Whereas with became, I don't think you're doing that. You're not interested in specifying a nature claim that the word was flesh as opposed to spirit. Uh, you're with became very much in the happening and event description mm -hmm. world. Yeah, I agree. I agree that that's what the author is intending here that the man Jesus was here and this happened and he's presenting his book as an eyewitness to these events. So I agree with that. And, but I simply see him saying that this happened, everything happened through the man Jesus. And ironically, this verse, which Trinitarians and deity of Christ believers claim as the verse that describes for them that God became man, I think it's saying exactly the opposite, that the word here was 
flesh. And we know what kinds of creatures are flesh from the book of Genesis. We have animals and creeping things and man. Man is flesh. God is not flesh. So this verse for the Hebrew mind understands it to be saying exactly the opposite of what the Trinitarian world says. It's saying that the word is not God. The word was flesh, a human person. So I don't really see it as distinguishing necessarily between spirit and flesh, but he's describing that the word of God was the man Christ Jesus. Yeah, I understand the difference that you want to make and the reason why you are wanting to do it. Um, I don't have that motivation to go down that route because I think that behind verse 14 there is the baptism of Christ and that became flesh at the baptism of Christ. My yeah. initial thought for your reading would be in that case we lose any mention of well when it began so to speak when the word as I would say when the word became flesh is now lost to us we just have the word is flesh and we have no explanation of when the word became flesh we will stop there for now i wanted to highlight one thing that dr perry said that i sort of skipped over when he was discussing how the phrases was with god and was god fit best for a human person jesus christ he noted that there was no parallel in literature of the Second Temple period for a pre-existent divine being or an abstract personification like wisdom. No parallel in such a predicate relation like this, where he said to be prostanteon, toward God or with God, and was God. But he found the precedence for men, particularly with Moses, that we see this language describing the relationship that Moses had with God. He was with God, prostantheon, and in a couple of cases, he's even described as God. If he's right, then we see not only an allusion to Genesis in John 1, verse 1, with the phrase, in the beginning, but also there is an allusion to the book of Exodus. And again, this is more evidence that the author of the Gospel of John is not commenting directly on the Genesis creation in his opening sentences. And then one other comment, if I may, and that is in connection to the phrase, the word was God. I expressed how the man Jesus can functionally represent God, but another way to look at this is to see the phrase as describing Jesus as representing God and that we see the Father, God, in Jesus. Because this is what we learn in the Gospel of John in a number of places. Jesus says, for instance, in John fourteen seven, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Henceforth you know him and have seen him. Then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and we shall be satisfied. And Jesus replies, have I been with you so long, and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. This is what I think the author is introducing in the phrase, and the word was God. In a sense, it's agency. Jesus is representing God, and when we see him, we see the Father. So for me, God in John 1.1c, and the word was God, means the Father. Not in an ontological sense, no, but in exactly the same way that the author explains it in the mouth of Jesus in the rest of the book. The Father is in Jesus, not ontologically, but he's at work in Jesus. The Father who dwells in Jesus does his works. Let's leave it at that. I'm sure that's been enough to get some thoughts and conversation going. We look forward to next week where Dr. Perry will explain how he views the baptism of Jesus being connected with John 1.14 and the word became flesh. Yishma'u anavim ve'yismachu. The humble will hear and rejoice.